Carrie never stopped being a fascination because there is so much to think about. And all of the things that there are to think about were dismissed by critics as nonsense, ridiculous bullshit. And that's sort of where my journey of understanding began. And I'm still on it because it's so dense how much is going on in Terry Hand's production. Hi, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is a first of many. This is the first time I'm actually in a location of, I'll call it Broadway musical memorabilia. So if you're watching the video, that's a uh, plug for our Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room to watch this video interview. You're going to see already who I'm with and what's behind us. But I am so excited to be joined by a queer artist, Kennedy Center honoree, a screenwriter, playwright, and director, Mr. Eric Champney. Hello, how are you doing? What's going on? Yes, this is Eric. So I'm doing this very a la Hollywood reporter style. So I'm holding a microphone. I'll make sure that Eric, you know, I he grabs it when he needs to. But first, I met Eric through everything Carrie the Musical. So if you're watching right now, there is Carrie the Master Cup behind us, this beautiful poster. And we're going to talk about Carrie the Musical and why Eric created this master cut and how long Carrie the Musical has been in his life and his background. So yeah, let's start with that, Eric. When did you first find Carrie the Musical and start to become mesmerized by it? I'll take the microphone from you. Um, my first experience with Carrie was in a Borders bookstore and I was looking through Stephen King's stuff and came upon the Carrie book and I noticed that it was a different spine uh, than what I'd seen elsewhere and I pulled it out and and it was this logo and it's the uh, the famous um, abstract logo of the profile with the the tear the blood tear coming down and and I it was stunning and fascinating I was like what in what in the hell is going on here and so then I flipped it over and at the top of the description it said now an electrifying new musical and I shoved it back into the bookshelf and said well that's stupid <laughs> what in the hell is that um which is it's it's hysterical like what I've gone through to uh, obtain copies of that book since then and as you can see I've got four of them now um and then uh, there used to be a shop across the street from the Majestic Theater um, here in New York, and it was called Actors Heritage. There's a shop still there now that that maintains the spirit of it, but Actors Heritage, Heritage was kind of this grubby, um, rundown, kind of like secret place. It, it, it felt like you were sort of on the inside track if you were in there, and they had this um, collection of window cards that were of shows that I'd never heard of. There was one for Raggedy Ann um, and there was one for Carrie. And so yet again, I'm face to face with this, um, this logo. And, um, and so that's how I acquired my first Carrie window card. Um, and I, I wanted to know. So I, I, this was like, you know, it, it was long gone by that point. And so I started to do the research that I could at the time. So I started looking at um, reviews and Time Magazine and Newsweek and, and whatnot and, and reading these, these um, mortifying opinions of a show that to me sounded absolutely fascinating. And then of course there's Ken Mandelbaum's book, Not Since Carrie, which um, people call the Bible of flop musicals. And uh, that that is a book filled with editorializing, um, as is his right as an author. Um, but what he described in the prologue of the book was what occurred on stage during the first preview of Carrie. And, and he's describing it often in a way that's disparaging. Um, compliments for moments here and there, but for the most part, it was a, what in the hell is going on? And of course, um, and there were photographs and I'm looking at the photographs, I'm reading the description and regardless of his opinion of them, 
I was entranced and I had to know more. And in college, I was given my first bootleg by a professor mm -hmm. and it's the uh, audience recording of the final performance. Mm -hmm. um, so when the overture starts and the audience is plunged into darkness, you can hear the guy saying, is this how it always starts with the lights off? Um, and so I'm listening to this recording from the audience of what's happening on the stage. And I'm just somehow able to understand what the hell is being sung and said and, and all of that. And, and so my theater department really got on board with this obsession. And so the chair of the department gave me a copy of a, a tape with the promo clips and a Stratford documentary that nobody else had. I've come to learn that nobody else had this documentary. Um, people have had B-roll from it and whatnot, but the finished complete documentary. And so I, I just, with video, um, especially because there is extensive footage of of Lindsay uh, Haley and Betty Buckley and um, these flashes of of Charlotte Dambois and um, and I was absolutely hooked and so the search began and this was during an era when um, finding bootlegs and audios like that was not as simple as a Google search or a, uh, a download or anything like that. You actually had to work for this stuff. And um, now friends for um, a decades long friendship, Robbie Roselle, I stumbled upon his carry website. Um, he had, I, I, I found out about it because Entertainment Weekly had given a little block of it in a page, um, plugging it. And Robbie didn't even know about this. So I went, it was a, I think it was a GeoCities website, like the old school, like, you know, do it, do um, DIY website. He had MIDI files of, of some of the musical numbers. Like he really did everything in photographs. He did everything he possibly could at that time to create a thorough carry website. And he had a guest book and I signed it and uh, left my information. And he emailed me and we began this, this friendship like over the telephone and and whatnot that has you know lasted all of this time and it all began through Carrie um and uh I don't know how I started getting the things that I got there was a tr there was this uh wonderful guy in Oklahoma that I somehow met online um and his name is Corey Kite and I went to Oklahoma and I brought a stack of VHS tapes and uh blank cassette tapes and copied everything he had, everything he had. And so I literally spent a weekend on this man's living room floor with uh, my VCR that I brought with me and these tapes and just copying everything that I could. Um, and that's kind of how you did it back then. Um, you really had to work for it. And I drove like eight hours uh, to, uh, to, do, uh, to, to do this. And he welcomed me into his home. We found some time to go to the state fair. So, you know, there was there was a bit of a, a break from it. But for the most part, it was just carry, 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 carry. You couldn't pull me away from it. Um, and then eventually came the soundboard recording, which like that at that point in time, that was like striking gold. And um, and then this the meeting the people along the way, like through through the Internet, through AOL, AOL chat rooms. Um, uh, my friend Christopher Scott in California. Um, he's one of the um, the legacy carry people. Um, and I mean, that's that's kind of how I refer to Robbie and Corey and Christopher and myself is that we go way back, way back to the to the very early days of all of this, um, along with some other people that um, um, I haven't met yet but know about, like the uh, director of the Stage Manor production. The uh, like the illegal 1999, I think, um, stage um, stage door manner where he, uh, where they were like, let's just do it, let's just do Carrie, and um, and uh, fortunately for them, the authors came and they were like, cool, you know, um, um, and that is me dropping the mic, okay, uh, but that's kind of how it all began, and uh, Carrie never stopped being a fascination because there is so much to think about and all of the things that there are to think about were dismissed by critics as nonsense, ridiculous bullshit. And 
that's sort of where my journey of understanding began. And I'm still on it because it's so dense how much is going on in Terry Hand's production. Okay, so does everyone know that when I'm not a podcaster, I'm actually writing academic scholarship, teaching in the university, and just doing all my queer male scholarly inquiries and analyses. So I am so excited to be talking about one of my favorite academic publishers, Broadview Press. They are an independent academic publisher. They publish in the humanities. Um, they produce high quality, pedagogically useful books for university and college classrooms. But as you'll soon learn, they also publish for literary enthusiasts and literature lovers. So they're always publishing with an eye towards diversity. There's so many titles from female authors, from writers of color. And for example, in the fall, we had on Ann Stevens on our podcast. So listen to that episode where she talked all about literary theory and criticism. And as you'll hear, she explains why literary theory is not, imp not important only to university scholars and to students of literature, but also to those arts and culture lovers out there, which all of you are a part of that community. So she discusses why watching Bridgerton actually requires a certain literary theory. And then we play a Wizard of Oz game where she analyzes the Wizard of Oz from all of these different schools of thought, including psychoanalysis, Marxism, feminist theory, queer theory. So what I love is that Broadview is offering 20% off with the code Ivory Tower. So head on over to their website and you will get 20% off with the code Ivory Tower. And if you haven't listened to our most recent episode with Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote Pop Culture for Beginners, yes, the first ever university analysis of pop culture, which is really resonating with me since you all know I'm a huge Real Housewives fan, but also he wrote The Mad Scientist Guide to Composition. So I know so many of you out there teach composition or need more writing tips. Jeffrey Weinstock just came on the podcast. Listen to our interview with him. And again, 20% off all Broadview Press texts. Use the code Ivory Tower. Head over to their website. The link is in our episode notes. Enjoy your reading. Um, it's it's so unbelievably intelligent and wise, and the allegories that are being uh, that are being uh, distributed are are very powerful and frightening and and uh, prescient. Well, and I think too for those out there who don't know, just because. I know there's so many who are aware of Carrie the Musical, but just for the beginners, I think that it's important when you say Terry Han, you're talking about the Royal Shakespeare Company production of Carrie that <clears throat> premiered in England, in Stratford. And I think just to get us all there, I mean, I knew about Carrie from LimeWire, which is maybe when I was in middle school. So we're talking about... 2005, six, Carrie somehow ended up, um, you know, on one of those illegal downloading sites. Um, and eventually it starts to be uploaded to YouTube, um, which I know Eric has a lot to do with the YouTube uploads, which we'll get to. But so Carrie, like Eric said, based on the Stephen King novel, then also adapted from the Brian De Palma film, which is important because we have some, uh, we have a creator from the Brian De Palma film. Uh, the screenwriter writes the um, book of the Carrie musical, right? Can you remind us who the screenwriter slash then the book writer of the Carrie musical is? Formerly Lawrence D. Cohen. Cohen. And, uh, uh, but his friends call him Larry Cohen. Yeah, so... Um, we have Larry Cohen writing the book for the Carrie musical. And then we have um, Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford 
um, doing music lyrics. Um, of, fame, of fame, stature, Oscar winning team uh, behind fame. Yeah, so that's important to note. Fame had happened right before Carrie. We also get Debbie Allen doing the choreography, who then she was in the Fame movie. So it's kind of Fame and the Carrie musical go hand in hand in a way with this creative team. Um, so I just want you to lay out our cast and I'll hold the mic for you. Don't worry, Eric. I'm going to do my reporter job okay. for Carrie the musical. Um, you know, let me get my workout with my arms. But I. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so who is our main players of the original 1988 Carrie the Musical cast? Um, uh, most importantly, Lindsay Haightley uh, was Carrie. She was 17 and uh, she actually got the role on her 17th birthday. That's when she got the phone call letting her know that she had uh, won the role. And uh, Betty Buckley um took over the role in New York. Um, they had originally wanted Betty to do it, but then there was some stuff that I'm not too sh sure about. So I'm not going to like pretend like I know things I don't know about, but they weren't able to make that happen. And so they brought in Barbara Cook and uh, Barbara Cook uh, did it in Stratford. And um, it was an unhappy match for her. And uh, she she bowed out. There were technical issues. There were I just don't think that she was having a very good time. Um, and it's a very muscular role. It requires a lot. And I don't think that Barbara was in a place in her life where she was comfortable delivering the physicality that would really make the role soar. Although her voice is spectacular so any recording that you can hear of barbara singing carrie is magnificent she sang it so well but it's such a, a different experience listening to her singing it versus betty singing it because barbara is singing with her operatic magnificence betty is singing in character in complete sharp razor character and and uh, it's a steely hard exquisite voice that can be so, so sensitive and so elegant and yet so dangerous at the same time. And I think that's one of the reasons why Betty Buckley, Betty, Betty Buckley as a performer is so revered is because I mean, having seen her live myself and up close and personal with her, um, there is a power that, that she delivers to the audience that washes over us that I don't know how to compare it. It's it's unlike any I've ever known before. It's it's inherently her own gift, and um, she is she is a, a majesty that cannot be copied. Um, and her matching with Lindsay was something sort of supernatural because they truly brought out the best in each other. Because Lindsay's performance between Stratford and New York transitioned enormously in Stratford she was very very meek and on Broadway she was very strong she found strength and character that was um unusual to what she had done in Stratford and how long is the transition from Stratford to Broadway like how many months are we talking about when Stratford closes and then a company comes to Broadway Rafford opened 13th of February in 1988 and ran through March. And then Carrie's first preview was uh, the middle of April. So this is a sh very quick coming. Quick turnaround. It was a very quick turnaround. And I think that um, that might have been not the best choice for everyone involved. I think that maybe a, a, a breath could have been taken in, in between the two versions so that um, if you are watching my film of it, Carrie the Master Cut on YouTube, just type Carrie the Master Cut or Carrie the Musical because it's up there. It's pretty up there. Um, my presentation of the show is not a presentation of the show that was ever performed. What I did was I called together uh, the what, what I believe are the best aspects of every version of the show. There are so many in between Stratford and Broadway and previews and performances and whatnot. Um, you know, there is a, a cast members have said we never perform the same show twice. And if you listen to different audios of previews and 
um, it's true. It was always changing. The orchestrations were always changing. Songs were coming and going and going back again. And um, and and so what was there for me to choose from was a smorgasbord of art that really uh, helped me put together what, for me personally, is the best version of that production possible. And workshops. Like Eric also, I love that he clips in... Um, the workshop and the rehearsal period. And, um, you know, if you don't know, I taught Carrie at Stony Brook University in a Broadway musical course. And a lot of you are probably listening from that course. So welcome. And we talked all about the adaptation from King, then Brian De Palma to the musical of just how adaptation works. Um, but something that's always like maybe to pull back a little why the Royal Shakespeare Company? Because I think this gets us to the core of the myth that you really um, bust, um, which is the whole tragic elements of Carrie and maybe what was going on here with the director's choice coming from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Like why Carrie the musical is so experimental and misunderstood that... Um, it's seen as this flop, but there's also so much nuance that you're bringing to light with it. So yeah, why Royal Shakespeare Company? What is the director doing that is so innovative that kind of ties into his past work? That is a long answer. You have asked for a very long answer. Um, the director was Terry Hands, who was the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And for... Um, for the creative team to join forces with the Royal Shakespeare Company is to know that what is going to occur is going to be special. It's going to be different, especially in that era, like in the 80s and the 90s. The Royal Shakespeare Company was world renowned for going bananas, for really taking extreme risks with their productions. I've seen Royal Shakespeare Company productions that go way harder than Carrie way, way, quote, weirder than Carrie, um, that that make Carrie look like Phantom of the Opera in comparison, as far as uh, design elements and and vision and, and whatnot. But yes, Carrie was uh, extremely exciting and different. And um, I, I can't really speak to the experience of the artists uh, because I was not there. Um, and I don't, I don't try to 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 be that. Um, there is a book coming out um, uh, written by Chris Adams called Out for Blood that's based on a, a an extremely popular podcast that um, he put out during the pandemic. Um, um, he and his friend Holly. Uh, this is uh, an Out for Blood t-shirt. Uh, keep calm and carry on t-shirt. I actually have that in baby blue. Yeah, I've got that the exact same shirt in baby blue. Yeah, I'm wearing the shirt for everyone out there. Yeah. So, um, but uh, shameless plug for Chris's book. Anyone who's interested in uh, the the backstage um, situation and the goings on uh, with uh, with that with that situation uh, should definitely check that out. I believe it's coming out this summer, and uh, you can pre-order it as well, like through uh, Barnes Noble and and whatnot. And there you go, Chris. And Chris, we might have you on here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So Eric, you know, Eric is setting the stage of all the behind the scenes in terms of the footage, in terms of how Carrie the musical actually... What it is. What it is. Yes. Look, uh, my, my interest in Carrie has never particularly been bound to... What happened in... Uh, like what happened, who misunderstood what, what got, uh, who fought with who, who got along with who, um, et cetera, and so forth. Like all that's fun and everything. And that's, that's, that's absolutely a relevant interest to have. But I find the show so fascinating all by itself that I've always come back no matter what to that. Yeah, you're interested in the narrative and the, you know, once the orchestra begins and the musical 
is going on the actual audience type of perspective. And I think it's important to draw these distinctions because, you know, Eric is coming more from, especially the work he does as a director, um, I'm assuming, but what it's like to view Carrie and to pick up, excuse me, to pick apart the um, numbers. We're going to get into our favorite songs, the scenes, the actual production and what Chris and I think it's Holly from Out for Blood do is more what the cast thought about the experience, you know, what Where they hid their microphones and their costumes and the um the ongoing revisions and the um um the Barbara Cook stories and the and and you know and and all of that is 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 a wonderful stuff for um for their book and they uh they did a very successful podcast and the book is not um i think it's important to know this i've spoken with chris about this the book is not a um a transcription of the podcast mm -hmm. he's gone deeper into the interviews um he uh he's uh really elaborating on a lot of things and and i think that it's going to be a very exciting read i'm certainly going to read it um it's part of the Carrie zeitgeist and it's, it's important. And um, Chris has been extremely supportive of the film and um, you know, so I want to be supportive of his book and the podcast is still there to listen to. It's still there out there. So, you know, yeah, all of this, um, you can have all of those balls in the air. They're all so different, the types of work you're doing. And I think it's important that we now discuss, okay, so Carrie, Margaret, we have our, I would say, the mother-daughter dynamic is our central dynamic. But we have this two worlds. And I saw Eric on YouTube. You had this amazing comment. Uh, kind of critiquing it in a very innovative, important way. Critiquing someone who was commenting on the master cut, saying, I've heard this a lot when I was doing work to teach Carrie the musical and to try to counter my students' own expectations. I will say to all of those who are listening, who are involved in the Carrie musical production, I know some of you who are in the original cast might be listening. My students thought Carrie the musical was one of the best musicals that we analyzed the whole semester. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reminding Eric about the mic, but, um, we then have a critique that I've heard so much and I just, it is so misunderstanding in my opinion, the Carrie experimental, how groundbreaking it was, which is the, here's the high school world, here's Margaret's world with Carrie and that these two worlds can't meet and that the music genre is so different. We get the operatic moments of Carrie and Margaret we get the 80s pop elements, I would say pop rock elements of the high schoolers, but you have this really profound reading of how the world comes together for Carrie. So I would love for you to explain it, Eric, because I think it sheds light on how the worlds are maybe not so distinct from each other. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces, in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember, 
that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit theglreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. Well, the everyone seems to conveniently forget that Brian De Palma's 1976 film, Carrie, is two movies. It is two movies in parallel with each other that come together at the prom. And those two stories share a character, and that's Carrie. Um, but they are two entirely different stories. You've got the story of Sue and Tommy and um and the the good the good people, the good guys, and uh Chris and Billy, who are the bad guys, and what they are gonna do about Carrie. What are they gonna do about Carrie? And uh they both have very different ideas of what that should be. And then you have Carrie at home with her mother who is abusive and crazy and 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 it's fair to say that she's abusive and crazy and we can frame that however we want but uh the relationship is extremely strained and frightening and the horror of Carrie uh that film rests within that relationship because I don't find Carrie the film to be particularly scary there are horrifying things in it but it's not a, oh, I'm so scared situation. It's psychologically wounding to watch. Psychological horror. Yeah, it's 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 upsetting. Um, but but those the world of the um it's it's the experience of how when you don't know what someone's going home to. So you have this whole world that they're a part of, that you see them in that world, and uh, then they go home and you don't know what that is. And uh, for Carrie, it's this um, uh, bear trap of a relationship with her mother. And, um, and what is so amazing is that we have that in the musical. We have two completely different shows happening in parallel that share a character and it all comes together at the prom. And when Carrie and Tommy enter the prom, the light design changes. Carrie's presence at the prom turns the room blue and silver. Whereas before, when they enter, the kids are doing their their um, their fierce choreography. It's this wonderful Debbie Allen extravaganza and um, that's absolutely magnificent with spins and kicks and dips and and all of that. Um, Flips, walkovers. Yeah, I mean, just it's absolutely. Her her work in the show is astronomical. Which, if I may, is I know you don't like to talk about, you know, how someone in the team might have thought about their work, but I do have to say, I really hope Debbie Allen understands the profound work she did with this musical's choreography because so many have critiqued her so unfairly and that upsets me because I feel like she doesn't talk about it because of the critiques. The uh it's been very interesting um during this time. I mean, we'll 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 get to this what um what I've learned from people directly involved with the production. Um, and and their relationship with it through the three decades that it's existed, where it began, when the journey, and where it is now, because it's fascinating. Um, but um, what's really important to remember is that you can tell two stories at the same time that are directly connected with each other. It happens in cinema all the time. And the what I find really exciting about Carrie is that you just don't know what you're getting next. We have this, this harrowing scene with Carrie and her mother when Carrie tells her that she's had her first period. Her mother recognizes that as a sign of evil to come. And, um, and it's this, this masterful writing, this opera and Eve was weak um, that is terrifying te most terrifying musical number in the history of theater <laughs> and and then we go from that to the high school kids just 
hanging out and and having sex and doing stuff at the drive-in. And and then we leave that and we go back into Carrie and Margaret's world where they're singing this this beautiful, heartbreaking duet about how they can't live without each other. And why can't a show do that? Why must everything always be one thing? There's a through line in Carrie. It doesn't take this this straight shot road. And I think that's why it's it's so important. People went into Carrie wanting the movie with songs. They expected the movie with songs. And that's not what they got. And I can understand to an extent being disappointed, perhaps, that you didn't get the movie with songs, because that is kind of what we're doing now all the time on Broadway um, with like little twists and, and turns with the plots to adapt it for the stage. But a lot of these things are essentially the movie with songs. It's not like um, it's not like anything. And I love some of these shows. Don't get me wrong. Um, the script is very, very close to the screenplay. It honors the film completely. And um, and there aren't really any surprises other than, oh, they tried that. There's a little moment here that was really fun that that, that wasn't in the movie. Uh, I, I think Legally Blonde is one of the most successful in um, adapting a film and and making it its own thing. One of my favorites. I think Legally Blonde did such a great job. But... I will say what you do so well in your master cut, Eric. Well, first, I mean, let's give it up to you, Eric. Like everyone, round of applause for combining the Stratford, the Broadway productions, like not only just one Broadway audience recording, we have the cast member who um, I know did like the video recording in the balcony. It, um, that was Scott Wise's video. Yeah, Scott Wise's video that cuts out at the end of Act One just because the battery runs out. But um, you have so much that you compile with the audio, but it is so powerful. And um, the audience, it's so important that you put the reaction from the audience because they are applauding. Like, this is not an audience, in my opinion, from every recording I've heard. They are enthralled. Like, they're cheering there's so much enthusiasm. So the criticism that it wasn't well-received is not true at all. It's actually the opposite. I remember reading the audience actually, when they learned that it was closing, tickets were um, really hard to get. Like they were becoming sold out. Well, the this is the traumatizing thing is nobody knew it was closing until closing day. And so the cast arrived at the Virginia Theater to a closing notice. And that was that was their notification. And um, and I will go into the underground stuff with this. Um, Friedrich Kurz, the the lead producer who had um who had joined forces with the Royal Shakespeare Company to bring it to Broadway, um read the New York Times review and chickened out and closed it. And uh and, and that's that. It it didn't close because people weren't coming. People were coming. And in 1988, people were coming because of word of mouth. That's incredible. And the marketing campaign for the show was fantastic. But people were coming because people were calling people and saying, you've got to go, you've got to go, you've got to go. And people went. And you can hear in all of these bootleg recordings from the audience what they're doing. And, and it's wild. It's wild. They're completely and totally committed to it. And it starts to become... What I love is this Rocky Horror Picture Show type cult following of, oh, it's the pig number, like referencing out for blood. Like they know so well, like you've said, Eric, this word of mouth, they even know what to expect musically saying, okay, this is the number that's next. Oh, okay. This is what we're ready to see. And so um enthralled so ready there's a lot of audience participation in the musical almost um a call and response of i would say because of the bullying narrative and this trauma that carrie is facing it's so um this antiquity feeling i think that's where the ancient greek tragedy comes in of 
something that is so universally felt by the audience. And that to me is like an Oedipus, like a um, Antigone in a way too. And it is a Greek tragedy. I know sometimes I've heard Terry Hand describe it as it's Cinderella turned on its head. Um, but the, vis the vision was Greek tragedy. And if you look at King's novel, it is a Greek tragedy. All the elements are there. It begs for it. And um, and so that's what we got. And oh boy, did we. Yeah, and I do remember seeing footage of King coming to the premiere, loving it. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot. Stephen King said that that he really liked it for all the reasons that Frank Rich hated it. Wait, and who is Frank Rich for everyone? Rich was the critic for the New York Times. They called him the butcher of Broadway. And that was during an era where a New York Times review could close a show. But his review for Phantom of the Opera was decimating. It was horrible. And well, I mean, here we are. It's 30, what, 35 years? It's 35 years for Phantom of the Opera. Well, the month that this has come out, it might have closed on Broadway. But so... R.I.P. Phantom and I guess bring way for bad Cinderella, which I don't want to get into, but, um, you know, break a leg, everyone. Um, uh, so, OK, we have Harry, we have Margaret, then we have it all comes from that overture. I mean, I just love to imagine the Virginia Theater, now the August Wilson, where if you've seen Jersey Boys, Mean Girls, Eric already brought that up. Uh, Funny Girls in there now. Um, it was a black box theater. They had painted all the walls black, which I'm just trying to picture every time I'm in there. And you get this such a powerful overture and the lights black out. You can't see anything from the audience and you can hear their reaction when you watch Eric's master cut. I love that reaction. And then all of a sudden you get this really powerful rock beat and you get the gym class, aerobic class, Gone wild, the most energetic dance number I've ever seen in an opening. And Charlotte D'Amboise, amazing, just choreography. And I've Charlotte has reached out, thank you, Charlotte, saying she doesn't even know how she got through the dancing because it was so powerful and exhausting. And they're belting, and they don't even have any um, singers supporting them backstage. Like, these... The women are all in Stratford. Oh, they did in Stratford, but they they cut that. OK, so they did in Stratford. Then in New York, they had to fully belt out without any backup singers uh, backstage. Um, so I think it's so intriguing, though, because we have such powerful. Choreography every time the high schoolers come in whether it's Chris Billy, whether it's Sue and um, Tommy. So just from your own experience seeing it so much, um, you know, what do you think happens with such intense choreography? Like, how does that, in your opinion, Eric, tie into the theme of what's going on? Well, uh, let's take it back a minute to the uh, the black the black theater, the blackened theater. Um, that's a callback to what Richard um, Richard Wagner um, did. Um, he uh, did not like the elitist function of a theater um, in which the uh, the peasants were on the ground having to look up at the people in the boxes and whatnot. Um, and uh, he did not like for there to be distractions um, from the the art. You will look at the art. And so he would paint the theater black and he would rake the audience so everyone had to sit in the same area and the uh there would be a wall um a wall covering the stage and just like carrie the wall would rise up and that was it and it was that's all you could see was just what was happening on the stage and um wagner began that and harry hands adopted it so that all you can see is the show you're, you're not looking around that you, you're not distracted by these especially in Wagner's era, like the opera houses were so ornate. There was all of this stuff. There was all this pretty stuff. And he didn't want anyone looking at that. He didn't want anyone distracted by that. And so he formed it so that the only focal point could be the the show itself. And so um, we begin with that. Um, well, and if I may, also, we have to remember in this time, we do have Phantom had just 
come or yeah, had just come out. We had Starlight Express. We had Cats, which Betty, you know, um, I had just listened to an interview before coming to see Eric with Betty Buckley from 2014. Um, and she talks all about how her task with Cats was you must deliver the blockbuster st uh, standing ovation number. And she said, how am I going to deliver the standing ovation number? Like, how do I get into that? as a character, as Grizabella. So very fascinating. Listen to Betty's interview on that. But there's so much spectacle going on in the scenery in those musicals. I think especially with Phantom, right? The chandelier um, and the opera house. Um, so you're right. I think it's important, Eric, for you to tell us that there is a lot happening with black and white with the set. Like the gym scene instantly is this bright white set that just you know blinds you if you think about it because we had just been pitched into blackness so that's no um coincidence it was on purpose yes you yeah. it the wall goes up and you are just flooded with white this the uh the set is white the girls are dressed in white and yes they are dressed in in um uh, variations of togas and um and None of this was a mistake, and there is no Greece, the musical, Greece, Athens confusion. There's a clear vision here. Fun myth, though, but yeah, yeah, it's 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 not a myth that I I, I like um, because it makes Carrie Hands sound like a moron. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends, you've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, Made It, or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs, and if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So, go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. -E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, and order today. As a Long Islander, I was so excited when I finally found a med spa that totally matched everything I wanted. I was looking for a good facial place, a good place that had skin products. And guess what? In my hometown now of Port Jeff Village, there is Skin Med Spa. And I'm here with the owner, Lauren, who's going to explain to you all what kinds of services are offered, products that are offered, and you know why you should come to Skin Med Spa if you're in the Long Island or New York City area. Well, we wanted to open up a place that was offering all holistic natural treatments that were really providing results driven, um, where someone could come in, maybe struggling with acne and has tried so many different products and they couldn't find what's right for them. So we customize all treatments to really help you dive into your skincare goals, whether it's anti-aging rejuvenation, like I said, acne, just to help with cellular turnover, focus on building healthy skin. Um, we have two locations. We have Skin Med Spa and Body right here in Port Jeff Village. And again, we focus on all natural plant-based skincare. We'll help you design a good custom skincare line for you, and we'll help you find the right treatments, whatever your skin needs. Yeah, so Lauren and Sarah, they know that I get a cupping here. I get hydrofacials with Rosie. I get jet peel facials with Lauren. Everything here is so wonderfully curated, like Lauren said. And there's just any kind of product. Oh, I know there's now laser hair removal. I mean, there's always a new product being offered. So 
everyone out there who's listening, if they want to come to Skin Med Spa in Port Jeff Village, how can they find you and get in touch? We're really active on social media. So at Skin Med Spa PJ on Instagram, that's the best way you could probably find us because we really try to post daily updates of our clients and who's coming in and the treatments that we're doing. Um, and of course, on our website, there's always links down how to book an appointment. But everything we do when you call us, that's always the best way. We answer the phone and we'll talk forever and help you find whatever is perfect for you. Okay, well, hopefully Lauren gets to meet you all. Say that you heard Skin Med Spa's ad on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and maybe I'll see you all here, okay? Good. Bye, thank you. And then on top of that, who in their right mind wants uh, the the teenager stuff and Carrie to resemble Greece? How does that make any sense? Well, and Greece is so campy and is a parody of the 50s. So I don't understand. I like it. It just the myth doesn't make anyone that that story doesn't make anyone look good. I will say, though, what I love is within our opening number that, Eric, you include so much of and I mean, it's so great that it exists, but of the Stratford dress rehearsal where we can see Darlene Love, shout out to Darlene Love. I love her part as the gym teacher, um, Miss Gardner. I always get confused because there's like different names for each Carrie adaptation. But um, that for Miss Gardner, she has like the workout out, out, outfit on in the um, dress rehearsal. And so do all like Charlotte is in a cat's sweatshirt because she was in the cat's production. Um, so you'll yeah, you'll see in the. Um... Um, there's home video, but like the, the thing about Carrie that's so unbelievable is how much footage exists from it. There's the documentary footage, um, extensive documentary footage. There's Kenny's home movies, Kenny Linden's home, home, home videos. Um, and then there's the house camera for Stratford. There's Scott Wise's video of act one on Broadway. There's an, an, there's more footage of Carrie than exists of shows from that era that ran for five years. And it's it's kind of perfect because it worked out well for me. It gave me a lot to work with. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, like, I can't even find footage of Starlight Express or of um, like to try to find even, say, you know, footage from Applause with Lauren Bacall. That wasn't good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Like there's the TV variation of it. You can watch that, yeah. but not the live production. And I think that's so important that how archived Carrie is as a musical is so interesting and um, lets it live on in this cult way, which I think is fascinating. But okay. So we have our. I want to talk about yeah. the. Um, okay. So in relationship to. They it, it's it's constantly being called the high school kids. There is no high school in Terry Hans Carey. That's not a thing. There is a school system, and it's a uh, uh, it's a system of education in a gymnasium school. And uh, no, in ancient Greece, a gymnasium school was a necessity for participation in Greek culture. It's where they trained warriors to fight, and it was also uh, to battle, and it was also uh, rooms for study and uh, philosophical discussion. And so what's interesting about Carrie that takes place in this white box that does things and transforms and et cetera, but I mean, at its base, it's a gymnasium, and Carrie that production is a philosophical discussion occurring in a gymnasium. And that's, 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 what's really hot. Um, Well, and also I love, yeah, gymnasia in the ancient Greek sense. We also have something that is so unique that we have to talk. I know, you know so much about it, Eric, and we have to talk about it is this is one of the first productions or I don't know if this has actually ever been done since Carrie, which is, we have half a British cast and half a American, but I would say mostly New York. And creative team. And um, uh, we had Ralph Coltai doing the, the scenic design, the great Ralph Coltai um, and uh, Terry Hans directing. Yep. And then the, uh, the authors are American. Debbie Allen is American. And then the cast was split down the middle, 50-50, English and, and American. And it, it, it had never been done before. I've 
never heard of that happening again to such an extreme. Um, people have come over across, across the pond to reprise roles that they originated on the West End and such, but to to actually like to the extreme of half the cast is American and half the cast is English is is amazing. It's a, an amazing unity and it's a it's a powerful choice and it's kind of incredible that they made it happen. Equity is is kind of a it's kind of a tough cookie to to get around. Yeah, well, and also they had to find housing for half the cast when it was in Stratford. Well, in Stratford, I think they all had to find housing, but just because it wasn't, you know, it's not exactly close to London. But what is it like sixty miles or? It's a it's a little bit of a trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it's. I mean, it's it's doable, but yeah. yeah. But and then something that I've always loved is how like our bad um bad boy, bad girl pair is they're both from New York City, Charlotte D'Amboise and Jean Anthony Ray. And then the goody two shoe kind of they kind of become the um angels. And then Charlotte and Jean are more the devil pair. Um and Paul. Yeah. Paul. That, yeah, Sally Ann and Paul Jangle are um, British. So very interesting how even the pairs are split down the middle. Yeah, that is that is fascinating um, and fun. And and stuff like that is, is, is just really exciting and fun and adventurous as far as putting a show together and deciding who goes where and who goes with what and, and who's paired with who. Um, and uh, but it, it makes sense uh, for Chris and Billy to be played by Americans because they're the wild ones and the more subdued ones are Tommy and Sue. And, um, you know, and, and even in, in I, I will jump to the to the backstage thing. Like there was this initial like culture shock that both sides had where the um, the the Brits are are subdued and and calm and and Americans are wacky nutty and and they had to find a common ground with each other for how to work with each other which they did as proven um because uh that you wouldn't it doesn't cross your mind for a second who's from where what's from who when you're watching the show because it's all so cohesively bound together um but uh the thing the thing about the gym and in and all of that is that there is a a sexual maturity that is being fostered amongst the tribe of women in that song. Um, they are being prepared, um, and um, and Carrie can't participate in this just because she's pure. And then she menstruates, and that is the beginning of an evolution for her, and it's an awakening, and. And from that awakening, she not only longs to be seen, she longs to be revered. She's feeling something that surpasses whatever this is that she's used to looking at from the sideline. Um, I mean, it's it's in the language, it's in the lyrics. Um, everybody will be will be jealous of Carrie. I am the sound of distant thunder, the color of flame. These are proclamations of greatness. And um she what's going on deep in me there's someone new where i used to be she's feeling something and the power that she possesses in the production is not bound to telekinesis which is a critique because i will agree the telekinesis elements are if you didn't know what's happening you're saying it's beyond the telekinesis but it is difficult to tell what her power is but i love what you're saying eric because it kind of counters the Okay, but where's her telekinetic abilities? Like we need to spell this out on the stage because she's a prophetess in a way is kind of what your reading and interpretation is that it's not just she can move the objects. No, no, and I and I think that's boring, and um, and I think that's that that it creates all of these stage problems and et cetera that um, I don't think have ever. I, I think that the closest one who's ever come who's ever really mastered the telekinetic idea is Brady Schwend with uh, with Carrie at the La, Ma La Mirada and then the killer experience in LA. Um, he did wonderful things where 
um, Carrie was moving her arms and the um, the seats in the audience were moving and and things like that, where he he really drove the telekinesis home in a way that I don't think that's ever been done before or since. Um, and um, and and that production is is hailed as probably the the finest and most successful of every production of the revival version. But we're talking about 1988. Yeah, and I know Eric. Um, did you see the Off Broadway revival? I think it was 2012. Was that 2012? Because I did see that too. So, um, yeah, we're not going to dig into 2012, but very different. Um. We don't have, we have in, but it's not a dance number. It's actually the men are in it too. Um, angst number in in the spring awakening ish. It's it it harkens to it. It harkens. But we don't get high choreography. We actually don't get a lot of choreography at all. Um, in terms of dancing, um, and we have some added numbers. But okay, all of that I think is to say. We haven't had a production of 1988's orchestrations and all of the numbers since it closed, right? Like, I mean, you're saying the stage room manner, but in terms of a production off Broadway or anywhere, yeah. anywhere, no, they, um, um, the authors, um, felt the way they felt, and uh, I, I think that they know they could have made um, a, a lot of money had they licensed a there's so many versions of it but had they licensed a version of it they're they're well aware that they could have um um profited greatly from that but they didn't want to do that and uh they did what they felt was necessary to to complete their journey with the show and um that created the 2012 revival and um as an author as as somebody who um understands what it feels like to have not particular maybe i this production did not achieve my original intention um or this version this writing this whatever um i'm happy they got what they felt that they wanted the show to be and um and 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 good on them and it's 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 a it's a wonderful opportunity that that they were given to have a a first class production with an incredible cast they had marin in it um, Mary Macy was Margaret. Mary Macy was, you know, God rest her soul. And um, it, it, it was a a new show. It was a new show. It was not this. And, um, which is exactly they. It was exactly what they wanted. They didn't want it to be this. Um, but that is the version that's licensed and and done to, to exhaustion all over the place. And um, people were were hungry for for Carrie, and now they can do Carrie. And um, and it's it's not this version of it, but it is the version that the author sanctioned. And, and awesome. yeah, and I would say um, a version that also the 2012 version is much more doable in colleges. I've seen so many now college YouTubes come up of Carrie that High schools do it. Yes, yeah, that I think the 1988 definitely with the intense choreography with some of the more it would not be a college high school as doable to try to execute all of that just like i don't even think the phantom of the opera is licensed are you able to license phantom of the opera now college for colleges can license it but that's it yeah so okay we got into a lot i think that we should transition into a part that I'm so invested in, something that I know, Eric, you've thought a lot about, which is you, you talk a lot about the backstage, but I kind of want to know what have you learned from the cast? Um, you talk a lot with Lindsay Haley, um, with... I know you've talked to almost every living cast member. No, that's not true. No, no, but, but I've talked to I've talked to um to several of them, but I haven't I haven't I haven't had a party with <laughs> with all of them. But uh, so, but um, but but no, I've talked um extensively with Lindsay. But I mean, actually, Lindsay and I haven't uh talked extensively about Carrie, but we have talked about what the master cut 
means to her. And I don't I don't want to um, go into to too much detail about that because it is personal. But what I have discovered um, in conversation is that the film has made it possible for for people who were involved with that production to let go of a narrative that has haunted it for 34 years. Okay, Eric, but why was the cast so haunted by Carrie the Musical's legacy? Now, 35 years, because it's been 35 years since Carrie opened in Stratford on that historical day in England, February 13, 1988. You're going to learn all about that because there is a part two. This is only the beginning. And... In part two, we talk about the Carrie and her mother dynamic. The abused becomes the abuser. That's Eric's words. Uh, how Carrie becomes a queer savior for so many, including myself, who I found my own gay identity in the Carrie musical in middle school on LimeWire. Anyone remember LimeWire? Okay. Um, so there's also a bonus episode. And everyone who joins our Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe, that's our Patreon $5 a month for all bonus episodes of the podcast. You actually are going to get access to part two, two weeks early right now, and have an extra bonus episode. So if you don't want to wait two weeks, because who wants to wait? This is really riveting. Head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Okay, see you all there. And make sure you have the lights on. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face. And you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the Pink Triangle, Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel and a dystopia novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein. So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730. Now to find all things True Crime and Academia, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 730s. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like... I do a deep dive on the case of JonBenet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So if you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, really yes, great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone. <laughs>